Welcome to Before It Was Extreme. We're joined here today by Jim Molino and Joel Goodhart. Hey, how are you? Now, today we're talking about the infamous show, which was supposed to feature TWA champion Buddy Landell taking on Buddy Rogers. But it didn't happen, and we're going to get into exactly why that show didn't take place. Now, there was a show that took place a couple weeks prior to this show, and we're going to cover that just to sort of set the stage and see where we were headed and where everything was going inside of TWA at that time. Uh, right now, our current champions, it looks like, uh, according to the internet, uh, Tony Stetson is our Bar Wars champion. Yep. Uh, the Blackhearts had just vacated the tag titles. Uh, what was the reason behind the, the title vacation there? Well, the last thing I recall is a, a divorce. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Okay, um, very good. <laughs> yeah, Lu Luna Luna was a was my contact. Originally. Hey, look at that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And um when I spoke to Luna on the phone, she was a she was professional. Uh, you know, and you get this persona and you just think, you know, the one thing you learn is there's Luna Vachon and then there's the outside the ring Luna Bashan, if you will. And um, the inside the ring was nothing like the outside the ring. And anyway, working with her and working with the Blackhearts and in fact, not negotiating, but talking to her about bringing her up to TWA. Because at the time they were wrestling a little bit in Florida and they didn't see themselves as a national or any kind of national marketing. But they thought if the TWA was going to call on them, which I did, uh, they would get the press coverage. And again, I think we talked about that the last show, that the one benefit that we had, especially being in the Philadelphia area, was a lot of the name talent uh, marketed themselves by coming up to the TWA and they got visibility and they got very, very busy. Um, so anyway, long story short, I think, <laughs> yeah, we'll just call it a lover's quarrel. All right, very good. <laughs> these, th these things happen in pro wrestling when tensions run high. <laughs> Uh, so about a month prior to this show, the show that was actually supposed to take place January 25th, 1992, um, there was a show. The last recorded show I have is December 7th, 1991, which took place in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was called Terror at Tabor or Tabor. 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 First match was Crybaby Waldo pinned Dynamo. Now, who's Dynamo? I don't remember seeing that name. Needless to say, neither do I. <laughs> if, if I recall, Dynamo was a guy from Delaware who kind of did like like an ultimate warrior type of um, gimmick. He may have worn a singlet, but I, I seem to remember the the, um, um, the rope or yeah, the tassels off the off the arms, and and he may have painted his face. But I remember he wore blue and yellow and and pushed that he was from Delaware. So Crybaby Waldo, for anybody who's not familiar, he, he did a, a baby gimmick, uh, you know, the full diaper, the, the bonnet and all that stuff. And I was actually just talking to somebody recently about this gimmick uh, because they were saying, you know, it'd be great if somebody did a full baby gimmick. But he also did a couple other gimmicks. I think he did like a a knockoff Big Van Vader character as well. Um, yeah, that, I, I, that was that was post TWA. Yeah, and um, he, he passed away just a couple years ago, but when you guys brought TWA back along with Mike Tartaglia and everything, I think he was on a couple of those shows as well, was he not? It could have been. Uh, you know, it, 
it's funny you keep bringing this stuff up i need to go on the internet and kind of look at these cards myself uh, i will say one thing about about crybaby waldo god bless him um he was a phenomenal guy in the back and i remember he came to the wrestling school ringmasters wrestling school and they were trying to figure out what he should wear what what, what talent he would be van vader never came across our mind it was Larry Winters who said, I got it. <laughs> okay. And I remember it's cry baby Waldo. He'll come to the ring with a big bottle. Okay. He can have milk and he can have milk in the bottle. Eventually we can use the milk in the ring. We can use this in any way. Let him put a diaper on. And of course, the first thing he said was, there's no way. There's no way. Well, sure enough, he came out as cry baby Waldo. And then he wore his pink, he wore the pink tights. And uh, Crybaby Waldo was a big guy to begin with, so he really wore the gimmick well. And it, it was my understanding, I was told by Mike years later, because obviously I wasn't there for any of these shows, but that he was able to really get it over, and it, it started to get over, which seems like such an odd character to get over in a Philadelphia market. So is it fair to say that he, he did well with this character? Think about this one, and then, and then Jim, you can... Here we are 30 years after we did it. And we're talking about crybaby Waldo. So if the question is, did he get over? 30 years later, we're talking about it. <laughs> well, I knew Walt before he was before he did the crybaby gimmick. He was had a tag partner and they were doing a monk gimmick. And and they almost did like a, a twin Undertaker thing before that, too. I, I think they were talking about doing something like that. And this was before the Undertaker. Um, they were talking about doing something like that. So it was a big switch for him to do Cry Baby Waldo. And like you said, it, it was over. And and I think I think just the he, he just had sympathy from the crowd. They they, you know, got into the character and they felt bad for him. I don't know, maybe they felt bad for him because because of what he had to do <laughs> or what he was doing, but and they got behind him and and they loved him. And and you know, I think that was one thing that that helped draw kids in. Um, to shows you 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 need characters like that sometimes to to help draw in kids and you know if I don't know if he did it he's maybe sold toy baby bottles that he signed or, or whatever you know on on the side but yeah that that was a good character it worked well for him for a long time. The next match was Rick Perez defeating Jimmy Janetti via reverse decision. Uh, now, for those who don't know. Uh, Jimmy Gennetti, I believe, was in the earliest version of ECW. Is that correct, Jim? Um, yes. Yes. He was in uh the very, very, very beginning, maybe like the first couple of episodes, a couple of tapings with um with Eddie. Um, but he didn't last all that that long, which is a shame. I, I think he was a talented guy. He he got it. He he understood the business and and he went on to do independence um throughout the uh, i think he did a lot of stuff towards maryland and he ended up living in virginia for a while and he lives in florida now yeah he worked a lot with uh, boogie woogie and yeah. i think when jimmy when jimmy value had his school i think jimmy worked at the school next up was tony stetson pinning glenn osborne and i believe this is where tony won the bar wars championship in this no. one well, no, nope, no no it was not Tony Tony won the Bar Wars Championship at a bar. We had a two-night Bar Wars 
um, uh, show. I believe it was a Tuesday and Wednesday night. I might be wrong on that, but it was two nights. We had, I believe it was 16 entrants. This was a total work, okay? But what we did is we had the 16 names of the entrants in a bag, and we had the people sitting around the ring picking out the names. And the first one was going to wrestle the second one. The third one would wrestle the fourth one. And we had them, and that was a total, let's see what happens. And sure enough, we picked out, we had talent in there. We had Buddy Landell in there. We had Cactus Jack in there, if I remember correctly. Plus, we had all the TWA guys. We had the matches. And what we did is we then ran downstairs into the dressing room. And Larry Winters and I put the matches together. Here were the first eight matches. And the first night was going to be the eight matches. The second night would be the four, the two, and the one. And Tony Stetson won it there. Wow. And what was the so concept behind the, the what was the concept behind the Bar Wars title? Was it like a hardcore title? Was it just no, a, no. a the concept was these shows at the Bar Wars, we had to make them mean something. Okay. Because when we did the shows in Bar Wars, these shows, I'm telling you, and Jim, you might agree or disagree. Some of the shows that we did in Bar Wars were the best shows we did. They were in a small location. Yeah. They had people around it. The fans were right there on top of it. And they heard every hit, every punch. And the guys knew you couldn't pull anything because everybody would see it. So the matches were legit. They were good. They were, they were great ways to get some training in front of a small crowd to be able to do some of the matches in a large crowd. And so what we decided was, we this was the third or fourth show in, we decided to create a two-night tournament, Bar Wars Championship, and the champion, it would be like the international, international heavyweight champion at WWF. It was a subtitle, but it gave you meaning to the Bar Wars. And when you said the Bar Wars, so this was a show that was, were these sold shows or these were events that you guys were putting on and that was basically your venue that you were renting out? Or was no, no. it? So what it was, it was the Philadelphia Original Sports Bar, and I know that ECW ran shows there. In fact, mm -hmm. Todd talks about those shows as if he created them. But Bar Wars, um, no, we, 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 we did it. We, we got paid. It was a sold show. Um, the bar itself got all the money for the drinks. I mean, we didn't make any money on any of that, the drinks or whatever. But we just put them on the show, and we, we sold it to them. And it was priced right for a bar to draw some people. It was at 8th and Market Street in Philadelphia. And uh, it worked. Every every subway connection and bus connection was right there, too, right in Center City. Because I used to take the, the speed line from New Jersey to the shows, let me out right underneath the building, and just walk up the steps to the street, and I was in the building. I, it, it was a, an amazing bit. It, had, it, it was probably the best building for getting anyone to any of the shows that that TWA ran. And the, the, the original Philadelphia original sports bar was owned or part ownership by several Philadelphia sports uh, athletes. So, I mean, there were, there were names attached to this bar. I mean, it wasn't just some crummy bar. This, this bar got a lot of attention in, in the city. I, yeah. I think, I, I think Mike Schmidt, uh, maybe Rick Tockett. Yeah. I, I know there was one of the flyers. But I mean, there were there were big names involved with this this bar, so and it got a lot of attention from the the local um, sports radio. So I mean, it, it was you know a, a huge place; everybody knew about it. 
Well, I shouldn't, one, it wasn't physically huge, but it was, I yeah. mean, everybody knew about the place. And the one thing you might forget, you might not even remember this one. Um, we were originally trying to establish the Philadelphia Wrestling Hall of Fame. And we were going to use the Philadelphia Original Sports Bar as a place they were going to give us a wall that we could put up the plaques. And let's see if you guys remember who was our first entrant who came, he, he came to the event. We had it at the Philadelphia Original Sports Bar, and he was, in fact, the only entrant that we ever got to to put him in the Philadelphia Wrestling Hall of Fame. It wasn't Bruno, was it? It was not Bruno. Trying to think who may have shown. It was, jo it was Joel Goodhart. No, no, it was superstar Billy Graham. Oh, wow. He just passed superstar. away. He flew in from Arizona just to get the award he got we gave him a plaque um it was the only time i got to meet him and and have some conversation with him but he went and then believe it or not at the philadelphia original sports bar the people that were there not only was he there but then we showed the match where he won the title against bruno in baltimore okay and it was great to just watch the crowd explode when superstar wins it when he puts the feet on the ropes and pins Bruno Sammartino in Baltimore. But he was the only entrant that we ever got into the Philadelphia Regional Sports Bar. A am I mistaken, or do I remember someone coming from All Japan or New Japan to work a match? Oh, yeah. Well, we had we had an arrangement with New Japan. But um, I was it – it wasn't Fujinami, was it? No, no. And that name's going to escape me because he just passed away. But we actually had him against Owen Hart. The first match that we had with New No, that, that's not what I'm thinking of. This was at the sports bar. At the sports bar. Yeah. And and I think they read whoever it was may have wrestled Johnny Rods. Not, or, not, for, not, not for me. All right. So then that was ECW. Yeah, had to be ECW. Johnny Rods never wrestled for me. Okay. Because I know Johnny, when he came in, brought um Skull Von Crush. Okay. And but a, a Japanese wrestler did appear, and I, I forget who it was. Yeah, so I, I, I thought maybe it was TWA. Yeah, had to be ECW. And this is going to keep happening between the three of us. That, <laughs> <laughs> because the lines will blur so much between, especially the start of ECW. Because if you've gone back and you've watched any of these old TWA shows, really those early Eastern Championship Wrestling and early ECW shows resemble so closely those TWA shows, it was largely the same roster uh, with, you know, a couple different additions and stuff like that, but uh, everything blended together so well. And now that we're, what is this, 30, 40 years removed, it's just going to keep happening. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'll, and I'll tell you, ECW, look, nobody has can deny, ECW took what I started to another level. Okay, no question about it. Um, I think we came up with the right mix um unfortunately i ran out of money todd never ran out of money. well until the end he didn't run out of money um and for me we created something and it was a blend you know and, and the, if you, the historical part of this it was, didn't realize it at the time what we were doing but i was trying to take the best of memphis the best of world class the best of pacific northwest the best of, best of florida and bring them up to the north which is what we did okay and people remember these shows now they remember it partly due to the TWA talent, 
Okay, and we were able to get our talent to rise to a level comparable uh, to what some of these guys did. But when you wanted to see Austin Idol, when you wanted to see a Jerry Lawler, when you wanted to see a Terry Funk, when you wanted to see a Kevin Sullivan, okay, that was the place to see it. Now, again, when ECW took over, when I went under and they took over, Kevin Sullivan was still there. Uh, Austin, I mean, they, they were there. Terry Funk, God bless him, was there. Um, so, no, all the ECW did was take TWA and take it to the next level. And uh, so our next match, uh, Mr. speaking of ECW, uh, Mr. Sandman pinned J.T. Smith, two guys who would go on to uh, be fixtures in the early ECW. Next up was that match was phenomenal. We used to have that match at Ringmasters Wrestling School. We left the two of them just wrestling. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And you know, and and JT and, and Sandman, we put them on some of the shows at the Civic Center, and they were top flight matches. And people watch those matches, and I'm telling you, they watch those matches with they got into it. You watch the videos on, on YouTube now, some of those matches, and the crowd. Here you had 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 people in the crowd who were there to see major, maybe the major names, but they were they were into those matches. Every one of them, they were phenomenal. And those guys, they worked it. They worked it. So if you've only seen Sandman in ECW, and specifically later years ECW, what was Mr. Sandman like in comparison to the later years Sandman? Oh, completely different. Okay, when 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 Larry Winters came up with the Sandman gimmick, I mean, it, the original idea was he was a beach bum, and Peaches, his wife, was coming out, okay, as a valet, valet for, for him, and he was just, he wasn't the crazy guy that you saw in ECW, okay? I mean, I've seen some of the videos. Now, I like I said in the last show, I never saw an ECW show live. I never saw it on television. But when he watched some of these old videos, Sandman was over. I mean, the bottom line, he was over. He was stone cold before stone cold was stone cold. Max Thrasher would pin the Rock and Rebel. Uh, so, do you have any good Rock and Rebel stories? I, I know he was a uh, he had a reputation a little bit. Well, he I'll tell you, he had a reputation. And Jim, you can throw some stuff in here. He had a reputation. He was. He was difficult. Larry Winters and him used to have brawl, well, verbal brawls, if you will, in the back. Uh, we needed him to do so. One of the things that I did early on was I told the local guys to go sell some tickets. Okay. And Rebel, to his credit, Chuck went out and sold tickets. And when I had a show at the Civic Center, when he sold the most tickets of the local guys, he fully expected to be put over. Okay, and you know, rightfully so. Um, so we had to keep that in mind as we went forward. He, at the Civic Center, he would sell thirty. Or, I sold the guys a piece of the ticket. He would sell thirty or forty tickets, and he made more money that night with the pay that he got plus the piece of the tickets than he ever got paid. Um, but uh, you needed him to do what he needed. We needed him to do, and sometimes he bought that. You know, he was our first. He was the first TWA champ. He won the belt, and then we took the belt away from him. <laughs> so, but, and that was at Max Meyer's playground. In the heat, that was 100 degrees. Oh, my God, it was so hot. And he won that match. Well, speaking of first champions, uh, 
Somebody who was credited for the longest time as the first ECW champion was Johnny Hotbody. Uh, and he teams with Don Allen uh, to take on the Pitbulls. Now, Jim, I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but for the for a number of years, I remember seeing Johnny Hotbody's name as the first ever ECW champion. But in the last couple of years, I've I've seen Snooka's name come up as <laughs> the first champion. So can you kind of set the record straight here? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember. It, it could have been um hot body before we before i shouldn't say we before ec start ecw started getting um a bit of a excuse me spotlight on them where maybe they needed uh i hate to, i don't mean to put johnny down uh, he, he was a great wrestler but um need to have a more of a name attached to the title to get some attention to bring people in not just fans but you know the guys say oh you know snook is working there Morocco was working there. Tito Santana was there. Tito Tito Santana was the champion for a while. Um, you know, and see names like that, and they go, oh, okay, it's a good promotion to work for. Um, so I think that maybe could have happened somewhere along the line. When we get John on here, he might know better than I do. And next up uh, in the main event, Paul Orndorff beat the TWA champion Buddy Landell via DQ. Uh, was the idea there to do a rematch at some point with Paul Orndorff and Buddy Landell, or was that just to kind of keep everybody happy? Uh, we we needed a main event at the top. Tabor Tabor was a Civic Center kind of building, um, and look, we were we recognized at the time that Larry Winters and DC Drake doesn't didn't sell tickets, not to that not to that group. Um, so I needed a main event, and they were both available. Uh, and Buddy and I, God bless both of those guys, uh, Buddy Buddy and I had an agreement that any time I had a show, if Buddy could be there, he's on it. Okay, so Buddy kept in touch. Buddy stayed in my house for time. God, <laughs> when he came to that my house. Imagine oh those stories. God. Jesus. When he came back to the house for a week or two. Oh, my God. But anyway. Did he, um, did he drive up in his Mercedes? No, no, no. Because yeah, I, I I got a Mercedes. It's in repo, but it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was Buddy Landell. <laughs> but it was interesting when we had Paul Orndorff. We used Paul Orndorff a couple times. In fact, the Temple, the video on YouTube shows him at Temple. Uh, he was the WWF name at the time that you could put on a card working independent that sold tickets. So keep in mind, in Tabor, which is in Northeast Philadelphia, um, Buddy Land, nobody knew who the hell Buddy Landell was, except the hardcores that were coming to the matches. You know, we had we had a following of some hardcores that came to every match we did, uh, but they knew who Paul Orndorff was. And Paul Orndorff comes out, the crowd pops, and the music com comes out, the whole guns music, and it just works. So that was just, again, that was a main event that we put together just to have, we had two guys that were available. Now we're heading into the, that was the last show I have on record. There may have been other ones that have just been lost to time, but that was the last show I have prior to this January 25th scheduled show in 1992, which was scheduled to take place in Philly. Was this going to be at the convention center in Philly? Yeah, this was at Pennsylvania Hall, which okay. is, there was two units. It was the convention center, which seated 8,000, 9,000 people. And then there was Pennsylvania Hall, which is where we played or where we wrestled. And that would hold it. If we ever sold it, I'd be about 4,000. Okay. So 4,000 was 
the number you were aiming for, do you recall how much you needed to sell in order to break even? Oh yeah, I needed 2,500 to break even on those shows. Okay. Okay, and to be honest, one of the problems that we had, I mean, hindsight, we had no merchandise, we didn't share in any of the food, so it was just based on ticket sales. Okay, and you know, and our ticket prices were reasonable. Okay, we even we charged twenty five dollars for a front row seat, and today you can't get twenty five dollars for a front row seat. So this was thirty some odd years ago. Okay, and we had people. We actually had a ticket plan where they could buy the same seat for full sh the four shows that we had at the Civic Center. So they gave us a hundred bucks. Okay, and I had that money in advance. Well, okay, but a lot of that money got spent to keep the shows going. But no, if I had twenty five hundred, that would be a break even. And this, the last show, the one you want to talk about, wasn't even going to come close to that. I was so, going to get. Yeah, that was that was one of the 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 questions I had was um, how many tickets needed to be sold, um, yep. and how many tickets did you real realistically expect to sell. Oh, I thought we were going to wind up at about a thousand altogether. I was, I was I, it didn't go over. It just didn't work. Okay, the matches. If I couldn't get past for the final show, as it, I couldn't get past the hardcores. Okay, the blood and guts that, we, that the, like the tag match that we talked about last time, the Buddy Rogers match versus Buddy Landell, you would think would have sold the building out. Okay. It just wasn't. It just wasn't happening to the point where, unless I had a bazillion people walk up the night of the show, okay. So my my toward the end, I had to make a decision: either I have to cancel the show and and quite frankly get killed, or have the show and get killed even more. So at the time, did you own a ring, or you guys were renting a ring? No, I rented. I usually use Ted Petty's ring. I rented it. Okay. So you were renting a ring, the, you had the building cost, and then I would imagine the biggest cost for this was the talent cost for this no, specific show? Cost, no, was biggest the building? cost was trans transportation. Okay. Were, okay were, you, were you flying Buddy Landell or uh, Buddy Rogers in for this no, show? Buddy, Buddy, was, Buddy, I believe, was in Florida, but when you flew somebody in from Florida, it was inexpensive. Okay? But I was having people flying from Alabama. I was having people flying from Atlanta. I was having people coming in from Germany and Japan. I mean, I, I'm, I'm talking some uh, some significant transportation. I'll bet you one half of the cost of doing a show is my transportation. Wow. Okay. Sometimes it cost. Sometimes it cost me more to fly a guy in than what I paid him. Wow. Do you recall what the building cost back then? If I remember, I, I could check this because I actually have some of the contracts. I believe it was $3,500, okay? Plus they got, I think it was 3% or 4% of every ticket, okay? Um, I had the licenses. I had the insurance, um, you know, all the stuff that goes along with having the building. I'll go one better. I used to have to get 10 to 12 hotel rooms. Wow. Okay, because if you look at some of the, the talent I was getting, unless you put two guys in a room, and you know, you got. But there were guys. I'm telling you, I had ten to twelve hotel rooms. That used to cost me fifteen hundred bucks. So, wow. Yeah. I'm just trying to do. I'm trying to do the math in my head here. <laughs> so, 
Picture this one. Terry, when I had Terry Funk against Jerry Lawler. No, I'm going to go one better. When I had Jerry Lawler against Curry Von Erich at the uh, Temple University. Okay. Jerry and Curry <laughs> both wrestled the night before in Dallas, Texas at the Sportatorium. Right. Okay. So they had a, they had to get to the airport early in the morning because keep in mind the time difference. The show at Temple University was a one o'clock show. So they needed to fly in the morning going against the time clock. They had to leave Dallas at six in the morning, which was like nine in Philly. Land in Philadelphia at 12, 1230. I used to have people picking Curry and Jerry up. Okay, I can tell you a great story about Curry and Von Eric. But then they would drive, they'd get to Temple University during the first half of the show. Because you know they were going to be on the second half of the show. You don't even want to know what it cost me to fly Jerry and Curry. Okay, on a morning flight out of Dallas to Philadelphia. Then when they got here, Jerry left after the show to go back to Memphis. Curry, I'm not even sure what he did. I know we took him back to the airport. I have no clue what happened. The cost to fly Jerry and Curry up from Dallas, Texas, cost me more than Jerry and Curry. Wow. Now, I was at that show as a fan, and for some reason it was running late. I don't know if it had to do with them getting it had to do with a, town. a lot of town. Yep. Okay. And <laughs> I was in the hallway that the locker room was in, and I was on the phone with my wife saying, well, there's still another match and, and I'm going to be late. And I took pictures at the time. I, I wasn't ringside, but I was in my seat taking pictures. Your, I, your wife must good. hate me. Oh, <laughs> get, get, in, get in line. <laughs> um, but Kerry came walking down the aisle or, or walking down the hallway for for his match. And I just snapped off a couple of pictures and they're actually really good pictures while I'm on the phone. I'm snapping a picture and he's just walking by. He had a gold robe on. Do you so still I, have those pictures? I, I I'm sure I have one. I, I'd have to find it. Oh yeah. If you find it, let me know. I want to, I've got pictures stashed away from, from a couple of the TWA shows, a couple of Carluzzo shows and some of the NWA shows that, that happened at the Civic Center. Yeah, if you have those, bring those to our next show. I want to scan those. All right. Hey, Ryan, I got to give you a side story. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. This is probably, I'm a, I might be the only one that knows this, okay? But Curry Monarch, when he came into Philly with the plain old Jerry, okay, I had them drive back to Temple in two different cars. I tried to keep kayfabe, okay? My ex-brother-in-law was the driver for Curry Monarch. Now, keep in mind, back then, cell phones were not prevalent, okay? Jim Mono had them, but that, they weren't around as much as they are now. Okay. Anyway, Curry says, lands in Philadelphia, and Curry gets in the car with my ex-brother-in-law, Scott, and says to Scott, I want to get a Pat steak. Okay. Now, now here he is trying. He knows he's got to get me. He's got to get Curry to the, to the show. And Curry's just now. You don't say no to Curry, my Eric. So my ex brother-in-law takes Curry to Pat Steaks to get a Pat Steak. Gets a Pat Steak. Comes to the comes to the um, uh, Temple University. Obviously, he flew from Dallas to Philly. Lands in Philly. Stops at Pat Steak to get a steak sandwich. Comes to comes to the dressing room. Gets ready. Gets in his garb. Gets ready. Set, gets in his gold robe. He goes in the ring. And when he goes to the ring, when it's his time, he happens to say to one of the side people at, at the table, 
what city am I in? Okay. He had no clue where he was. Okay. He had no clue where he was. And that's after flying five hours with Jerry Lawler after having with him the night before. And he just and going to Pat Stakes and he still did not know what city he was in. <laughs> that's Curry Mutter. Uh, do you recall the overall budget for this show? What you were gonna have to spend all in for this show? For what that show? guess? For this show, yeah. That show, if I remember, see, you're asking me some great questions. I'm going to say, I'm thinking it was eight thousand bucks. Okay. I'm thinking and, it was eight thousand dollars. And then you said you realistically thought you could sell a thousand. No, no, no. That's the Civic Center show. This was the Temple University. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. for the for <laughs> the for for the January 25th show. What what do you think was the budget for that whole show? If I re- man, I, I thirty five thousand. Wow. Yeah. And and think about that. This has been nineteen ninety two. Yeah. So you said you thought you could sell a thousand tickets. Oh, when you know, I. I thought I was going to wind up at a thousand. I needed three thousand on this show. Right, to, right, right. Yeah. So you thought you could do a thousand, but right before you canceled it, how many tickets sales were you actually at? Do you know? Four hundred. Four hundred. Wow. So yeah, you, you know, hadn't even made to, half. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I wasn't going to come close. So you I hadn't mean, even made half of your no worst expectations. No, no, and again. There was, a, you know, was, there was a lot of conversation that we're going to have a lot of walk-up. Uh, you can't, you know what I'm supposed to do. You can't run a show or walk-up. In fact, I'll go one better. If you really want to get down to numbers, and this was all my fault. It had to be my fault. I had, on Wrestling Radio, I had 22,000 listeners. There's a, something called a Q rating. And the Q rating that back then showed that we were the number two rated show on Saturday mornings behind KY, oh, number three, I'm sorry, KYW and WMMR. And we had 22,000 listeners per quarter hour. And I couldn't get 3,500 people to buy tickets to my show. That was going to be, that, that was going to put me on the map. Okay. So obviously I promoted it wrong. I did something. It had to be me. It wasn't the wrestlers. The talent that we were having was phenomenal. Okay. And, you know, it just, it, it, look, I think back now it was a, it was my failure. I couldn't blame anybody but myself. Okay, so so let's talk about some of the matches that were scheduled. I I have four matches that were announced or that have survived through the course of these last you know couple decades. Um, and I'm no, I'm going to butcher this name. Uh, Shiro Kojinaka versus Chris know. versus Chris Benoit. Um, so how, how did you come across Chris Benoit? How did that work out? You know, if I remember half of this stuff, it'd be great. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to remember, obviously I didn't call Chris. I, I, there was somebody, somebody had given me Chris's phone number. Okay. And I do not recall who it was, but I will tell you, I mean, in hindsight, Nan, woman worked in my, my organization. And I'm, I don't remember if it was Nancy that obviously got me the number, although I don't think they were connected at the time. I, to be honest, I don't know. Yes, and see, maybe Owen gave it to you because you had used Owen it, before. Yeah, it could be. Like I said, you know, 
it was interesting. Everybody that worked for me said, you know, have you ever called this one, ever called that one? <laughs> and I, I collected phone numbers. Okay. Yeah, I would I, guess so, and because they were probably both working for what was left of Stampede. And be. they were both in Japan too. It could be. Could very well be. Could very you, well be. Were you guys tape traders during this time? Or is that beyond your time? No, that was beyond my I was never I never got into that. Um, when we had the wrestling store, the, the Squared Circle, we were selling some of those tapes. Um, but there were people that, man, they lived and died with those tapes. Okay. And no, I, I, I never got into that. How about you, Jim? Yeah, a little bit. If, if something, um, you know, made me go, oh, that, that sounds good, or that's a matchup I've never seen, or that would be interesting, I, I got some tapes, some of the Japanese tapes, um, things that, you know, I knew I wouldn't see here on on local local television or even u.s cable you know television yeah, the, the, the one tape i went out of my way to get and they actually marketed the tape itself was the hair versus hair match in memphis tennessee in the steel cage with austin idol jerry lawler Boy dangerously mm -hmm. tommy rich and i mean i worked with all those guys as it turned out okay and we ran angles at the philadelphia civic center shows with austin idol and jerry lawler People kept thinking they were going to start this thing up again. It was, it was great stuff. But that was the one tape I really went out of my way to get. And then we had another match with two of the uh, the best binds in the history of the business. It was Eddie Gilbert versus Kevin Sullivan in a Falls Count Anywhere match. Can you picture what that match would have done? Okay. I mean, I think it, it's – Jim, I don't know about you. I, you mentioned last time the tag match was your favorite. Whenever I could do a – one of the, one of the uh, I never marketed it, but one of the things I always said about a TWA show is everybody will have a front row seat at some point during the show. Okay. And the inference there was there was going to be a pins count anywhere, the brawl somewhere in the building. So to me, you get, as you said, two of the best. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I think that, that, that could be, that, that could have been a main event anywhere. Well, that match, this show, that match. Good. I was going to say that match did happen before at Pine Hill Punishment because I did it. And yeah. they did go all over the building uh -huh. without it being a Falls Count Anywhere match. Yeah, and it was in a, and it was a high school gym. In a high school gym, yeah. Okay, and they were going to take this one. Oh, my God. This would have been <laughs> this. You know, I, we've had a lot of great brawls. And Eddie Gilbert, Cactus Jack brawls were great. But this one had the potential of being because you just basically say to the guys, go ahead, just do it. But I want everybody to have a front row seat. I want you to work the building. When Austin Idol and Buddy Landell did one of those for me, they wound up going almost on the street. It almost feels like some of this stuff is so far ahead of its time that it's a victim of being a, a, a – they were just two guys on the roster back then. You know what I mean? Like, little did we know what what the lore of both of these guys would become. And maybe part of it is, and this is just me sitting here, you know, th 30 years later, but maybe some of it was that uh, people had seen these guys so often um, on all your other shows that maybe they didn't stand out. You know, you know what? It, it's weird because, again, it's always talking in hindsight. You had three different kinds of fans in our matches. The one was the hardcore 
smart marks, as they call them. Okay. They think they know everything. They're into it. Look, we had the hat guy on our front row. Okay. That was popular in East. We we had people flying in from California to see our shows because they couldn't see the talent anywhere else. Okay. Uh, Mike Lano, who does a lot of photography in, in the business, used to come to our shows all the time. So we had we had the smart marks. Then you had the people that just wanted to see a, a wrestling show other than the crap that was going on at the Spectrum. Okay? And our competition was not the Spectrum. Because the WWF, they were always going out through us. That was, but our, our competition was Crockett Promotions. And we actually outdrew Crockett Promotions for one of our shows. Okay? And I wanted to work with Crockett Promotions. I wasn't looking to blow them out and beat them out. That wasn't, wasn't going to happen. Um, so you had the second group of fans that wanted to see something other than the stuff in the spectrum. Okay? And then the one thing you learn about wrestling fans, similar to NASCAR, they're not necessarily a wrestling fan, but they're a Ric Flair fan. Or, they're, you know, they're a fan of a specific wrestler, Triple H. They're not, they don't go for wrestling. They go to see that Stone Cold Steve Austin. It's a classic example. People would go to a wrestling show and watch all night waiting for the main event for Stone Cold to come out. So you have those different kinds. And unfortunately, with all the great names that we were having stacked up on this last card, none of them were drawing tickets. And the bottom line is they don't draw tickets. Yeah, and I, I think I may have said it poorly. It's almost like the shows were so stacked, the fans had almost gotten spoiled. Oh, yep. Was, no was, my, was my thought process. And that, you know, uh, on a regular show, maybe across the country, Eddie Gilbert and Kevin Sullivan would, you know, sell 500 tickets. But because you had so many of these matches and these guys were on your show so regularly and they were so used to seeing guys being flown in from Germany or Japan or whatever, that they almost were spoiled. Oh, it's very possible. Look, I, like I said, I take blame. I, whatever I did, it, whether I oversold it, whether they, I spoiled the fans, um, I will tell you, some of the fans have told me now, they went to my shows and by the third or fourth match, they were exhausted. Okay? Because I used to open a show a little differently. My, my philosophy was the first match has to convince you that next show, you better be there on time. Okay? The one thing I used to hate was you run a show at 8 o'clock at night and people show up at 9.30. I just bothered the hell because there's some great matches. So I always wanted the first match to be a good one. Then I would take it down a little bit and then build it up. Okay. Um, by the time some of my, the one, <laughs> one of the shows when we had the Black Hearts against uh, the Dog Pound. Okay. That match was a brawl from the minute the bell went off. And that's where the Black Hearts won the bell. By the time the match was over, everybody was exhausted. <laughs> okay. It was just, it was I mean, even if you watch the match now on YouTube, it's tiring. So, again, my fault. Absolutely my fault. The other match that I have listed prior to the main event was Steve Williams and Terry Gordy, if you can picture this, uh, versus Dan Crawford and Doug Furness. So not Furness and LaFon, unless no, Dan Crawford is no, Phil LaFon. Dan okay. Who is LaFon? Uh, who, it, it, they're the same person, okay. Yeah. Okay, there we go. Uh, so they changed his Fer name in the WWF. 
Okay, so Furness and Lafon, Furness and Lafon, as I know them, the Can Am uh, connection. Yeah, against. How did this match come about? This one started. If, if you remember, well, a little back at um, Temple University, we had the Battle of the Bam Bams. We had Terry Gordy against Bam Bam Bigelow, and then uh, Jim mentioned a match that we had at Pine Hill. Uh, a, a little after that, we had Steve Williams against Bam Bam Bigelow, and that's the one that Buddy Rogers was the uh, the referee for. So I had a connection with both Bam Bam and Steve Gordy, and they're the ones that brought it up. Okay, and it was a match. They wanted to have this match. Okay, and then, look, the match has been out there. There's videotapes of this match in Japan or whatever, but this was a match that the Jim Molinos and the Joel, and the Joel Goodhearts would have loved and didn't sell me one ticket. <laughs> Not one. Nobody called, nobody called me up and said, I want to see this match. And this match was called, it was four airfares. I was flying them in from Germany. And I mean, it was ridiculous. I had international flights. I had to fly them out two days before in order to get here on time and three nights hotel rooms and all this kind of stuff. That, that match would have been phenomenal for about two people. So I would have, I would have locked John Finnegan in a broom closet to, to have, to have done that match. You know, where's Finnegan? He's supposed to do this match. I don't know, but I'll step up and do it. <laughs> I was, I was a big fan of Japanese tag team matches. And, you know, when you, when you look at some of the tag teams that all Japan was running at the time, these were two of the top teams. How were you guys announcing matches back then? Was it all on the radio show, like one a week yeah. or? All the radio. And where, was and again, it multiple matches at once, or was it one a week, or how was it? Yeah, we built, we built it up. Well, actually, okay. what we did, generally speaking, because we typically had three months to build it up, there wasn't a whole lot of angles we could run. Getting these guys, because we were on the radio Saturday morning, to get these guys to call into a radio show was tricky. Okay? So we promoted, we announced as many sh as we could, and then we would try to build a surprise up. We try to keep a main event toward the end and make an announcement of another match being added, what have you. I had, uh, I think I mentioned last time, there was a potential. It was never going to happen, but my fingers are so crossed. For the match that we had with Buddy Landell and Buddy Rogers, okay, um, I was going to have a surprise appearance. And I had this all figured out. And if I had 3,500 people in the building, I could afford to do it. And again, even if the guy said yes, I don't know that it would have happened. Um, but this was the Battle of the Nature Boys. Okay. And who do you think would be the guest appearance to come in during the match? Ric Flair. Yeah. Yep. And I was trying desperately to get it done. And it wasn't even the money because, quite frankly, I would have paid whatever it took. But if you only have a thousand people there and you have a surprise, what good is it? Right, okay, because right, right. you can't announce you're not you can't announce he's going to be there. So yeah, I mean that would because what was going to happen, Buddy Rogers was going to win the title. And uh Nature Boy, uh Nature Boy, Buddy Landell actually came up with the match and putting putting Buddy Rogers over, and that would have allowed Buddy Rogers to be a champion in five different decades. So for for the fans who are not aware, uh Buddy Rogers actually lost a Battle of the Nature Boys match to Ric Flair in 1978, and that was his last match. So now you're talking 1992. 
this match was supposed to play, take place January 25th, and Buddy Rogers actually died on June 26th of that same year. So yeah. this truly would have been his his last match yep. in his yep. swan song here. Uh, do you think, because I know you're a huge Ric Flair fan, if you had worked it out with Flair ahead of time and Flair said, absolutely, I'm there, do you think no matter what you would have went through with this show if you got a commitment from Flair? Yeah, but I would have, the only way I would have done it is if I could have announced it, okay? And the problem here was the surprise value, okay? Right, right. I'm, I'm, I'm picturing Buddy Rogers there holding the belt, and then out of nowhere comes Buddy, comes Ric Flair. The whole place would go crazy. If I could have announced it, um, it, I don't know if it would have had the same value, but I would have certainly sold a lot of tickets. Right, right. But the, it just, it, and again, I mean, there was too many things going on that he was working with Crockett at that point. And it was when we had Flair the one time uh, in 1989 when we had him for the dinner. And that's another story. I could, that's a whole chapter of my book. I'll give you a whole story on that. But um, he, look, he worked that dinner and he came. Jim Ross worked the dinner. Elliot Murnick was at that dinner. Um, and so I kept in touch with Flair. In fact, I saw Flair about three years ago. He was in Philadelphia for something. And um, I finally had my first picture taken with him. Okay, I, mean, I never took pictures with any of these guys. And so I have this picture of me and Flair. But, you know, it just, if it could have been worked out, as long as I would have been able to announce it, uh, that probably would have been. But again, don't know if it would have made enough money. I was so far behind on that show. How did the negotiations with Buddy Rogers happen? How did it all work out? How did you get in contact with him? How did you convince him to work another match? Well, Tell me the, the story the, here. The contact was originally my former partner, Carmella. I mean, Carmella knew Buddy from way, 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 way back. Um, and so Carmella is the one who introduced me to Buddy. In fact, Carmella, if I remember correctly, Carmella actually bought Buddy's car. So one of the cars that Carmella was driving around was, was Buddy Rogers' old car. Um, so that's how I got to meet Buddy Rogers. One thing led to the other. And Buddy, I got the sense that Buddy was looking to get involved in something, okay? He, first of all, God bless me, kept himself in shape. It was phenomenal. And when this, this came up and we, it, it just evolved. We came, came up with the idea of making him the referee in the match at Pine Hill because he was originally from Camden in that area. Um, and the guy who did our videos, who came up with all of our videos and our music uh, songs, et cetera, et cetera, was from Camden County Community College. So there was a connection there. And one thing led to the other. When we did the press conference at the Philadelphia Original Sports Bar, if you remember, we had Buddy Rogers. We had um, Buddy Landell. Both came in for that. that, And we had everybody from Pro Wrestling Illustrated. George Napolitano was there. Bill Apter was, you know, they were all there. We had a press conference. We actually had a press conference to announce the match. And again, I thought it was going to draw. I thought it was going to draw. And, you know, and look, it wound up being my swan song by it not happening. Okay, but there was a reason why it didn't happen. If you had any match that you would have liked to throw on that show, or one that we didn't cover that maybe you're thinking about that we didn't talk about, or you too, Jim, is there anything you would have liked to have seen that you felt that TWA was capable of doing during that time? Um, I, I can just throw a name out there because I thought he was a, 
a hell of a wrestler and i don't know what his thoughts were and and i i think he was coming would have come in from from florida and always gave a good match was al perez i i thought al perez was was a could give you a good match and i i think al could would would be one of the guys a bigger name that would be willing to work with a twa name to help elevate um that that twa wrestler and you're right he would have done the times that we did use al perez we had Al Perez one time against Stan Lane, mm-hmm. and that was an, uh, that was one. And then we we tried something. We put Al Perez with Austin Idol, and came up with the tag team called the Heartthrobs. And I thought that that would work. Well, again, another mistake. It didn't work. Okay, it didn't work. Uh, but Al Perez was another one. Again, quality worker could r- work an angle. He could be both babyface and heel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and yeah, he would he would work with the promotion to get something over. No question about it. And and I think what Al bring would bring to um in contributing to ticket sales that like people don't look at now, I think, in the way of, of wrestlers is that uh the ladies would have come to see Al Perez. Yeah. You, you don't see that much anymore where a group of girls are, ooh, Al Perez is going to be in philadelphia tonight let's get tickets and and go see him and maybe we can go to the marriott afterwards and we can talk to him (laughs) (laughs) well that's why that doesn't happen now well that's why when i had the match against stan lane i figured that was two that would do it i also (laughs) when i put them together with austin idol i really thought that they could work it and it just didn't work it just didn't work but uh, you know put it somebody should have used them correctly i didn't Somebody could have used them correctly, no question. Crockett didn't use them correctly either, so. No, no. So, Jim, I'll, I'll start with you on this. I'm going to ask both of you guys the same question, but, Jim, you're you're a promoter. You've done a number of shows yourself. Is there anything you felt like could have been done with the benefit now of three decades behind us? Could have been done differently or could have been done better to maybe promote this show? Um, You know, it, it's funny. I, I was – and I didn't think of anything until we were sitting here having the discussion and something came up and I was wondering if, um, because for a while with ECW, ECW did bus trips from New York and I didn't know if the bus trip idea would have worked, maybe gotten a hold of, um, someone like a John Rizzi who was running, who had a radio show out of New York, contact him. He promotes it on his show. He puts together a bus trip. They come down. Because um, I know, Joel, you, you used to do some bus trips and, and some yeah. even even further than bus trips. John, John did that for about three or four of our shows. He had his bus trip to about four of our shows at the Civic Center. Okay. And I just thought, you know, that that is a concept that doesn't isn't used anymore. Yeah. Um, but it, it worked for ECW. And I didn't know if anybody was really doing that at the time. And John's yes. the only one that I could think of to to contact yeah. in New York. Yeah, well, that was it. And John, it worked, you know, and John was on Long Island, so it wasn't in the city itself. But that being said, we had, I'm, I'll, I'll pick, I talked to John everyone. In fact, I saw John a year or two ago at the Colafeller Alley Club out in uh, Las Vegas, which I go to. And um, one of the things we talked about was the bus trips. And we used to do, we used to do bus trips to different shows all over the place. And we did video buses. 
Um, John Resi then took over that idea. So he would bring down 45 or 50 people from New York, which was always a shot in the arm, no question about it. It was great. Uh, but we needed to get three or 400. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and, that would... and we didn't have the internet at the time yeah, yeah. and, you know, and all that, you know, uh, you know, the, you could have maybe bought, I don't know what time would have cost for, for um, advertising on, on local, um, you know, syndicated shows at the time, you know, superstars or, or, you know, Crockett's um, independent or Crockett's, you know, syndicated shows in on in local philadelphia market or even in other markets outside of the area if you've well, gone to new york or baltimore and and sure. run ads would have helped but you know then you know you know that's the expense you're looking at now you're putting more into it and, and now you're you. losing more money before you're getting more any money back you know it's interesting you bring that up and again because we were pre-internet today you know, I have a production company, a promotion company. We do these concerts on the side and we spend for advertising, we spend money on Facebook and Facebook ads. We generally, for every show, we budget about $3,000 for Facebook ads. And we, we track them because these ads have a code to it. And we, I can actually tell you that we generate X number of dollars from each ad that we run on Facebook. Well, today, if I... Well, I see, I don't know that what we did, I'm not even sure what ECW did back in the day would work if there's an internet. Because the one problem with the internet is whatever happens in Washington, D.C., Spokane, Washington, here's about it 30 seconds later. There's no more territories. There was no way to, to, to do any of it. So, yes, you could definitely promote on the internet. Doing a super card today would be great on the internet because you can advertise it in, as you said, various markets and reasonably priced. I mean, it's not that expensive. And if you have a budget of three or $4,000 for promotion on a big card, you might be able to generate it. So I missed it by 30 years. <laughs> so, so, so just in closing, if you had to go back 30 years, you would invent Facebook and we would all be rich right now. So uh, if I yeah. go back 30 years ago, I would never have gotten involved in this at all. Okay. <laughs> so when the show, when, it, when did you ultimately make the decision that, Hey, this is not working. I got to pull the plug. What was your, what was your final straw? I realized if I was going to pull the plug, it had to be on the radio show that Saturday morning. And so if I remember correctly, I believe it was that Thursday, literally two days before, where I just decided I got to pull the plug on this thing. So I decided that I was going to go on the radio Friday, uh, Saturday morning. My first thing was that the show was canceled. Then for the last hour of the show, people would call in and all, sorry to hear that you're leaving and, you know, all the, all the, uh, the, the goodbyes, if you will. And then I ended the show by saying, we wrestled, we brawled, we tried it all. And I went off the air and that Thursday and Friday, I cut off my phone so that nobody could reach me afterwards. Um, and, and that in effect is how ECW got created because Larry Winters and Bob Ortiz and, and Todd Gordon kind of were there to pick up the pieces and God bless them. They were able to do it. Okay. Um, and they were able to put the EC Eastern championship wrestling together, but it was that, it was that literally that Thursday. Why why cut the phone and everything? Were you just were you embarrassed or you just didn't want to 
oh my God, embarrassed. Keep in mind, here's the greatest, I'm being obviously partial here, the greatest independent promotion in the country. I had a radio show that had 22,000 listeners. I used to sell up to 3,000 tickets for a show. All the boys in the world knew where I was and they knew I my checks cleared. That's a whole nother story. Um, I Yeah, I had to disappear. And think about this one from, I went off the air January 18th of 1992. Okay, that was my final show. January 18th of 1992. The show was supposed to happen the following week. I did not do any wrestling of any kind until 2008 or 2009 when Mike Tartaglia called me. So literally for 17 years, I didn't watch television, didn't look at it, didn't even want to know about it, disappeared. Do you regret any of that? Oh, I agree. I agree. Yes, 100%. I regret that I, there's a lot of things I regret. One is how I handled the end. I'm sorry how I handled the middle. And I'm sorry how I handled the beginning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, in hindsight, you, I, you should have done things differently. No question about it. Okay. But did the radio and, show have to go away or was that a a byproduct of you canceling the show that you felt that the radio show was something I purchased. I purchased the time and then sold commercial time. Okay. And so I was buying the time from WIP. I was on a major radio station. Okay. Um, again, it just, it was right for me at the time to disappear. It was not right for me to not call the Jim Molinos and the John Finnegan's and the Larry and tell them and, and say goodbye. And thank you. I never really said goodbye to Jim Molino. I didn't, you know, I didn't say goodbye to anybody. So this was a matter of just, I had it in hindsight. Yeah, I should have handled it differently. No question about it. And Jim, what was your reaction to all this as this was kind of unfolding? Were you a listener to the uh, wrestling radio show or you oh, didn't sure. get that? Sure. I was, I was a listener to the show. I was a member of the, the fan club before I became a referee. Um, so that was how I, really started with Joel. Um, I, I said it in the last show, Joel trusted me enough that when he ran, when he did the luncheons uh, where he would bring guys in to question and answer and autographs and, and just sit and have lunch at a, at a, at a restaurant. Uh, it got to the point where he, he trusted me enough to, to drive the guys, uh, whether it's at the picking them up at a hotel or picking them up at the airport or taking them back, whatever. Um, and that continued into ECW because I, I drove with a lot of the guys. It, ECW days, I had a minivan. So I was I was packed with wrestlers <laughs> to New York sometimes from, from a Philadelphia hotel because next night would be TV in Philadelphia. Um, but yeah, that was how I started. But I was I was really shocked. I thought this show was you know, I didn't know anything about ticket sales or how they were going. And I would have, I was blown away that it was canceled because I thought, wow, this show is really going to put the, the company on the map worldwide, especially, like I said, with that, that tag team match. Um, and with, with Benoit too, because uh, he was a name in Japan at the time, Pegasus, the Pegasus kid. Um, and, and into Canada too, because like I said, I think he was wor still working for what was left of Stampede Wrestling. And now, did you call or in, let somebody else call <laughs> Buddy Rogers and let him know? I'm assuming he wasn't listening to the radio show. That's why. Well, let's put it this way. I didn't call him. 
Oh no, really? No, I, I didn't call him. I called him. Did you? Yeah. Buddy Buddy gave me his number and Buddy and I became friends. And and I can't take that away from, from the closing of the company that Buddy and I became good friends and, and would talk on the phone quite often. Um, but yeah, I called him and, and I said, Hey, Joel was just on the radio this morning and and canceled the show. And I, I don't know why. And um, you know, I I'll, I'll find out what I can for you. And and he was like, oh, what a you know, he it was a shame. He he was really looking forward to yeah. to to doing that. He he was he was really happy to be back in a spotlight. Yep, because he wasn't doing anything. He was he had a he lived in Florida. He just you know <laughs> he worked out in his pool. <laughs> that was about all he did. <laughs> he wasn't involved with it because because when he lived up here, he was he had all kinds of businesses. He had um a liquor store he had a restaurant a bar and restaurant he owned a um a mobile home park he was part promoter with um the the roller derby um at a place in the in cherry hill new jersey called the cherry hill arena which would run a lot of wwwf shows and those at the time were promoted uh with the local promoter was gorilla monsoon um it was probably buddy before gorilla but um, you know, Buddy was very active in in the area with with several businesses, and I don't think he was doing anything at all down there. And I think he was looking for something to do, something to well, keep you know, busy. That actually wound up being the same thing with Bulldog Brower. Uh, Bulldog Brower mm-hmm. lived in Delaware, and he right. was just he was just itching to get involved, and he wanted his kid to get involved. But Bulldog Brower came to me. He came to me, okay, and you know, and uh, Bulldog Brower. I mean, come on. So, but here, one last thing, and, and Brian, you, Jim Molina mentioned the luncheons. Can you picture, we had a luncheon, one of the luncheons was with Abdul the Butcher, <laughs> and Abdul the Butcher dressed in a suit and tie. <laughs> okay. I cannot picture it. Oh, <laughs> Abdul would come to 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 um, the shows dressed to the teeth, suit and tie, um, monogrammed um pocket on his, on his shirt no on his on his shirt oh really monogrammed a atb wow. <laughs> abdullah the butcher but and yeah so- oh, oh i drove abby one time to an ecw show this is and this was in the earlier stages so it wasn't quite extreme and my son was with me who probably was about 10 or 12 at the time and abby loved him he he you know treat didn't you know disregard him or or treat him like a a mark or anything he he you know engaged in conversation with him yeah and, and, and you know another thing with that door he was religious one of the things that I, he always needed from me if i was having him on a saturday night show and he was staying over he wanted to know where the local church was on sunday for him to go to the church and the one thing Abdul always told me is he's Abdul the Butcher here and he's Larry Shreve here. And you, 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 sometimes that works. Okay, sometimes that works. And for him, he had to go to church on Sunday morning. Wow. Yep. Well, I'm sure we're going to talk about Abdul the Butcher in great deal ch- detail. This was the end of the TWA, but there is so much more to talk about here. We have the very beginnings of the TWA. We have so many different influential names that came and went through the course of TWA's history. Guys, I want to thank you for joining us here tonight. Uh, This was a a great episode for me to 
be able to hear some of these stories. Uh, if you're listening to the audio version of this, you can check out the video version on YouTube. Just check out at ECWA1967. We always put the video version up there. Uh, I want to thank both of you guys. Is there anything else you want to add about this final show before we get out of here? Yeah, Ryan, you were born way too late. <laughs> I missed it all. <laughs> we we could have used your ticket purchase. Yeah. <laughs> would have put us over the top. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you guys for joining us on Before It Was Extreme, the TWA Legacy. We'll see you next time.